0: Ann and Peter Hague. And uh, today we're going to give you, like, samples of, like, our favorite things, things that you really want to know about. And we're going to start, actually, uh, with... Hey, how easy is it to get Salumi in the United States that's actually Italian? Well, of course, the Italians have just decided that they will not have pineapple pizza. And so um, that American company is going out of business there. But at any rate, back to this, what we're talking about, we're going to be talking to Olivero, Oli, about his company, Oli Salumeria. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a great product, and, and he's understocked to, to listen in. so now I- okay here we are we're talking to oliviera called uh called Oli, uh, which is also the name of his company and he's from the great city of roma <laughs> but he's living in california the good life um ollie um did you get this idea because you couldn't find anything over here? Or is it something you've always done, making salumerie?
1: Well, my family has uh, always done salumeria in uh, Italy. And uh, when I came to the U.S., I kind of saw a lack of uh, local uh, made salami that had the same characteristics that you would find in Italy. And so what inspired me was uh, really... To bring that quality you find in Italy, but make it here in the US available for US consumers.
0: Right. Now, um, did you try to um, recreate the process, that, um processes that you find in Italy, uh, to make your cinnamely?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so you know, we tried to go kind of back to the traditions which means uh, using a process which is very Italian, which essentially is a low-temperature fermentation and a less uh, acidic salami that is uh, also a bit more fresh and uh, less dry than what you could find here.
0: And you've won awards for your uh, salamis and salumi. We are right. around,
1: yes, and we started. We actually started in the in kitchens, so with chefs. So, you know, they were the toughest customers to convince at the beginning, and uh, that's how we started.
0: Huh. Now, um, from my experience, and um, we visited. Where where did we find the um, the, the king of of um, what was it, Super
2: yeah, it wasn't, wasn't so personal. I can't remember the name
0: of it now. It was where was it in, in northern Italy? Huh? It was in
1: the. They could valley. be probably around, uh, maybe around Parma or something like that.
0: Yeah, somewhere in that part it was, of Italy.
2: It was actually in the valley of the River Po. And according yeah. to the according to the people who made the salumi, the reason it was so good is because it was very drafty.
0: Yeah, and then they, they, it was the sea air that, that gave it its character.
1: Yes, and you know... We I are mean, about, do you do uh, things with air? Hmm? Yeah, we, so our process is all about fermenting and drying, and so air is uh, critical, air flow, air quality, and for example, our dry rooms every so often, uh, you, you know, they take air in from the outside when the temperature and humidity is correct, and so... Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are based here in Oceanside. We have a desert kind of uh, in the back of us. We have the sea in the front, and it's a perfect microclimate for drying saline. Oh, great.
0: Now, um, you started off small, or did you start off just full, full
1: tilt? No, we started off small in 2010 in uh, Richmond, Virginia, Okay. We started with uh, 10,000 square feet, where we uh, started uh, kind of grinding and uh, drying uh, salami. And uh, we went nationwide with whole foods relatively quickly. And in 2015, we expanded uh, to Oceanside, and we went from 10,000 square feet to 100,000 square feet. Wow. <laughs> Yeah.
0: So, what, did the market expand that dramatically?
1: There is a huge demand for uh, for quality products. I think, uh, you know, the American consumer is really stepping up in quality and understanding what quality is, and uh, mm-hmm. so we see a great demand for our product, yes.
0: Yeah, well, of course, a lot more travel to Italy has raised standards, raised the bar a lot, I think.
1: Uh, I think that helps a lot, you know. When when people, because the real thing about our product is, is that you have to taste it to know the quality. And I think when people go back, you know, go travel in Italy, they taste the product there, and when they come back to the U.S. and, and they're trying to find uh, something that is similar, and there's not that much on the market, and that's mm-hmm. kind of why we exist to fulfill that gap.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's a. Salou Maria in California started by a chef who had a restaurant, and he left the restaurant and started doing this full-time. Do you know who I'm talking about?
1: Uh, yes, is he no California or Seattle?
0: Um, I thought he was in California. But so okay. who's in Seattle? Oh, maybe it's uh, Framani. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Framani. Framani is, uh,
1: he does a great uh, job. And, uh, yeah, no I
0: never hear anything about him anymore. Is he still going?
1: He's still going. Yes.
0: Now the,
2: the Seattle one is you're thinking about his his Mario Batali's father. Exactly. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah
1: <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking about. Yes. You, right. You, you know him? We we don't. I don't know him. I know Paul Bertolli from Parmani, but I don't know the. Uh, yeah,
0: totally
1: That's it. Yeah, and, and you know, is, what, what is it's nice also is the the this whole category. But there's a lot of the smaller companies that pop up and uh, and, and and try to bring good products to the to the public as well. So that's good. And we're all you know, we're all friends, and we all have the same mission. Yeah.
2: yeah um the, th- the thing that I remember stuck in my mind most. When we were talking to the Prince of Culatello, the
0: said, Prince of Culatello, he said definitely. our inventory
2: is down right now. We only have about 6,000.
0: <laughs> it, yeah. it was amazing. It was amazing that when they were hanging all over this room and the smell was absolutely, the aroma was incredible.
1: Yes, it's almost like bread a little bit, like uh, ferment, uh, yeast and bread.
0: Uh-huh. I guess so, I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, now, um, tell us, I mean, how many different uh, salamis do you make?
1: Well, you know, we make a few different salamis from, uh, you know, a classic Genova, which has just a little bit of white pepper, to a applewood smoked salami that we call Napoli, and uh, then we have spicy salami that has chilies. So we, we cover kind of a gamut of options, Flavor-wise, and then you know our other thing is kind of how you package the salami so that we can facilitate the use of it in more occasions. You know, so yeah, well, you so
0: introduced you, we you introduced at the fancy food show um, what we got samples of on um, the packages that are like ready to to, to pack lunches.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we have uh, what we call the snack packs, which essentially uses a La Panzanella cracker. And, which are, and uh, then we have different kinds of cheeses and salami. And so this essentially gives the, the ability to have a good product on the go uh, when you
0: want it. Right. You know what I like about the packaging is you, can, you have the little pull tabs to open it. And, yeah, and the, mean, the sticky stuff remains, so that if you don't eat the whole thing, you can just reseal it.
1: Yes, it's uh, called the peel and reseal, so that you know if you don't use everything, but, but, but then you can seal it, put it back in the fridge, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't go bad essentially.
0: No, oh, yeah, I thought I thought I discovered that, and you, <laughs> you planned it all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now you, you also you also have salumi that are identified by place. Like, like Genoa, for example? Yeah, we have
1: Genova, uh, Napoli, which is a smoked one, Calabrese, because traditionally in Italy a lot of spicy food comes from Calabria, so that's yeah. uh, Calabrese. And, and, and so we kind of pick up on the regional different recipes that you would find in Italy and replicate the flavors here.
2: Now do, do, you, do you make the one that's soft and spreadable?
1: We do not do anduja, no. And, and, and we, we, <laughs> we, we we specialize in salami, and, uh, and that's what we do.
0: Right. Um, now, I mean, it, do you sell, like, to individual retail outlets, or how do you market and sell your products?
1: So we go uh, mainly through wholesale. So you can find our products at... Uh, uh, Walmart, for example, you can find the products on Amazon.com. And then we have more regional players, uh, like a uh, public supermarket and uh, things like that. So there's big nationwide ones and there's smaller regional supermarkets.
0: We have a local, you mentioned Calabria, we have a local competition. Um, okay. For Raso Prasada and it's always it's one. Um, he he actually is a produce guy, but he makes the best um, uh, uh, salumi around. He always wins. <laughs> He's <laughs> Calabrian. <collaborating. Okay.
1: laughs>
0: and you know, and that's
1: the beauty about this industry is, is that again, there's so many little guys, uh, or little producers that are contributing to to elevating the offering, and and that's I find that great.
0: Uh huh. So, but you, you back to your your um. What do you call these the the packaged ones?
1: So the small ones that have the cheese the cracker and the salami, yeah. we call the uh, the snacks. Okay. Snack packs.
0: And then what about the others, the larger ones, so then, all meat? So we we have
1: a whole different line. So the snack pack is for kind of the individual on the go snacking. Well, we also have a line called the antipasto, which is a bit bigger. It's about a 12-ounce pouch, right? And in there, we we have packages with diced cheese, uh, olives. Uh, we just launched a oh, new yes. one we had some uh, of those. with uh, cornichons and um, cheese curds, and that's more for at-home entertaining. So to make like a charcuterie platter, uh, and we want to help uh, in those occasions there. Uh.
0: Well, I guess the the sky's the limit in, in how how you can modify the packaging and delivery of of this um, uh, fermented.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so the sky yeah. is the limit. But you know, the, our goal is always to offer packaging that that works for the American consumer, and so that he can enjoy our product, uh, whatever he might be doing—either entertaining or on the go. He might be hiking. Uh, and what have you.
2: have you Have you noticed an uptick because of the presence of an ex-movie star now filmmaker called Stanley Tucci
1: <laughs> Yeah, Stanley Tucci is, is, is definitely helping the, the industry I think, and every, anybody who really brings attention to the quality of food that we eat, I, I, I think helps what we are doing
0: uh-huh. Now um, it you, you really are tied to tradition, tradition in this. So um, what kinds of expansion would you be positioned for? Just more of the same?
1: Well, no, we're looking to introduce new and uh, interesting flavors. Uh, for example, we did a package for Costco recently where we did uh, kind of a, a spirit flight of salami where we had a bourbon salami, a mezcal salami and a gin salami, which was really? have different different berries. Yes,
0: I've never you know, only... I've heard of that. I've never no, heard of never. that. I've never seen it.
1: Pushing ourselves to see, you know, what 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 can we make that, that, that satisfies the U.S. consumer and, and bring them quality salami, even with different formulas and different packaging.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I, I they. Uh, no, no self-respecting uh, Italian salumery re- 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 would would put booze in the salami, would they? <laughs> well, no, they have
1: booze in salami in Italy. They do uh, salami with grappa, they, they do salami oh, with yeah, wine, that... of course. So you you know, we, 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 being in Southern California, we had to do a mezcal one, for example. So it's a different concept, <laughs> but uh, but also tying to local tradition. So. Yes, let's take the process from Italy, but but let's also integrate it with American tradition a little bit, and, and that was the idea behind that.
2: You need yeah. you need to get to know the Nonino family,
0: yeah, for your grappa.
1: Yeah, for sure. I like the Nonino grappa. Oh, you, it's fun. You, know,
0: you like it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's we bad. did it. A visit there, and uh, it was lunched on. We were going to record with the the Nonino sisters and the mother. Oh, I mean, be the beautiful. father never gets invited to anything, you know that. Yes. <laughs> and none of the husbands get invited either. But um, they they had this catered from a local restaurant, which is a very good restaurant. And um, um, and uh, they matched every course of this multi-course lunch to grappa. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah,
1: that must have I been mean, an interesting lunch.
0: <laughs> well, there was one course, which was a fish course, that they served um, white wine with. But otherwise, it was all this. So I had a deal with the waiter. I said, you know, when I put my glass in a certain spot, you take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so I had drunk the whole thing <laughs> I don't think I could have stood up <laughs> after
1: this well, what was your favorite I like the more the barrique ones the one so when, uh, aged in woods I guess they get a bit of a flavor.
0: well I mean I, yeah. I really think they're all good I didn't realize there were so many varieties until I actually met them and realized that I mean you can actually pay pair taste wise to different yeah. Uh, courses yeah it's just there's so much alcohol <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> so um you know, we have um we have a a, a salu- salu- um this this one guy has it, it local to us, and uh, it's become this ongoing family business, and uh, you know the the children recall um actually sleeping in the shop. Um, napping in the shop, growing up. That's how close a family business it was when they were young. And they, they do successive, yes, yeah, successive family members take over and run it. And they do a boom-up business. I mean, it's really good and authentic. Um, but, yeah, but, you know I, know, I... Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead.
1: You know, we're very similar. I mean, my, my family is like, five or six generations that have has been doing this. Uh, first they came from the mountains in Umbria and from Norcia, and then slowly they moved uh, to Rome. And, uh, and And it's really been a family tradition kind of thing. So uh, often in Italy, you, you know, you kind of follow what your family did, especially if they specialized in a sector like this. And, uh, and that's kind of our story as well.
0: What does your family think in terms of authenticity of what you're doing in California?
1: Well, they like it. Uh, They, you you know, essentially we're using the same process that we're using there. We're using the same dry rooms that we're using there. So, so everything is the same. The flavors are slightly adapted to to the U.S. consumer, but otherwise, it's uh, it's the same
0: product. But I mean, I don't think they're used to having bourbon flavored. No, they don't
1: <laughs> have bourbon flavor. No, they still have a grandpa flavor.
0: Yeah. So, so um, how does one get your, your uh, products?
1: So, you can find it on uh, Amazon online. Uh, we're nationwide at Walmart. And then uh, we're in Publix, uh, Albertsons, uh, and other smaller regional uh, chains.
0: Now, do you sell right off of your uh, website?
1: We do not sell off of our website, but on our website, uh, OLLI.com, we we have a find our product locator where uh, you put your zip code and it tells you where you can find them next to you.
0: That's great. That's great. So when you go back to Italy, do you just go to Rome or do you travel?
1: I travel. I was was just back at the beginning of July and I did – Uh, We went around the kind of uh, Malfi coast and then up towards uh, Ponza, the islands. I usually stay around the sea when I go back in the summer. Very good. Rome is a bit too hot.
0: Well, (laughs) (laughs) we, (laughs) we, we think you're doing a bang up job and we wish you continuing success at doing it too, Ollie.
1: Thanks. You know, we, we, we try and everybody tries here to, to bring the best product we can to the American consumer.
0: Well, and you make it so convenient. That's the thing that really is going to move you along with this convenience-driven culture we have here.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important to, to offer quality and convenience as well, you know, because oftentimes uh, uh, convenience is sacrificed on quality while well, well, we don't take any shortcuts while being convenient.
0: Uh-huh. And do you, do you collaborate with these uh, the big thing these subscription food online food um sources? Do you do that? Yeah, we
1: we work with uh, William in Sonoma
0: online they do a
1: package for us and uh, so so you can find our product through them
0: as well. Oh that's good. Yeah, William Sonoma is good. Yeah. They also they, they handle the my favorite beans also from California. Oh, no,
1: very good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we we have yeah. been uh, it's about three, four years, so it's a it's a good established relationship with them.
0: Great. Well, we love your what you're doing. Um we love salami and we love Italy and uh I'm I'm very pleased that you have such a high-quality product and and such a convenient uh, packaging system. So let us know. Keep us posted on what what new you're going to do, past the booze and fuse. (laughs) We
1: will do. We're actually launching a new line in September that is quite interesting. Uh, It's not finalized, so I'm not really ready to talk to us about, but maybe we can reconnect about that.
0: Okay, well, let us know. We'll do. Okay. Only, uh, is, I was going to say much gratis, but that's the wrong one. <laughs> Molto grazie. Molto grazie. Grazie, grazie <laughs> a lei, signora. E buona ciao, ciao. ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.
1: let
0: next stop. We've got Jessica Formacola, which is a wonderful name, isn't it? Um, And she's going counter trend in many ways because she has a book called Beef It Up. Even when everybody's doing plant-based things, it's a wonderful book. And she can give you her case, her reasoning for doing this right now. Listen to Jessica know, we're, we're going to be talking to Jessica Formicola, and um, she has her first book out called Beef It Up. Um, this is clearly not your first involvement with food since you've been doing this your whole life, <laughs> uh, but, but it's your first cookbook, which is certainly a, stren, a strenuous undertaking. I did one and sw- swore I'd never do another one. <laughs> So, yeah. But at at any rate, I was surprised at the subject matter. Is it because, basically, you've been around the Beef Council for so many years? Most all of our books we get in anymore are um, saying no beef unless it's just like a, a garnish
3: yeah so beef has definitely been a little bit controversial uh recently probably in the last decade or so but i am a firm believer in a whole food diet more so than um a protein-free diet and beef is one ingredient it's a whole ingredient it doesn't have all of this other stuff in it so when it comes down to like paleo and whole 30 and things like that beef is still allowed and in moderation, like everything else in life, sugar and anything else, in moderation and accurate portion sizes. It's actually one of the most perfect proteins out there next to the egg. Yeah, I
0: love eggs. I'm, I'm yeah, eggs. I, Either one duck egg or two hen eggs a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, eggs. they're delicious. And yeah.
3: beef, you know, it's, I find personally, and I've worked very close with Certified Angus Beef brand and several cattle farmers, that beef is actually more humanely raised than other forms of protein. Um, not to knock chicken or, or pork or anything else or even fish, but it, it actually has, its 98% of farmers in the U.S. are family-run and owned businesses that just have their heart into it and they treat their herds like family i mean it's it's a business obviously but it's it's more heart and soul than purely just ranching and i find that to be think,
2: admirable do you think it's just the fact that the, the animals are so big
3: i, mean, they're, they're
2: not, they're, I think
3: part not of it exactly, is the animals not
2: exactly cuddly but it's the same t-
3: no neither is a pig though unless they're little right but uh, No, I think that, you know, it's. I have two little kids. So my little kids still have a really hard time understanding the process of meat and looking at a cow in their books. But I think that's part of it. I think part of it is the life cycle is longer. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, methane gases and things along those lines. But when we look at if not eating beef is really going to save the world, I don't think so. Uh, we can save the world with electric cars and not taking private jets places. And other animals emit methane gases too. I mean, I, I have dogs and love dogs, your pet dog farts too. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where if we look at this in a much larger picture, instead of a silo, it's really not as bad as some of the press may make it out to be. And if there's always another side to the story. Yeah, Google I mean, I'm not so taking a
0: position rep- on it. I'm just, you know, I, I get the sense of trends by what books people send to me. Of
3: course. And, and of I course. have to
0: tell you, um, the hot, hot book trend is vegan and vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, vegan, it's vegetarian, so and raw.
3: Everybody. It is, it is. And so, as you mentioned before, I've been in the food industry for, for quite some time now, and most of my audience that I create recipes for and that read my blogs, savory experiments and easy dessert recipes, are—I don't want to generalize—but more middle America, middle class families that aren't eating vegan and vegetarian diets. Mm-hmm. It's—they're still pretty expensive to buy cashew butter and and cashew cheese and things along those lines. And when we're looking at the meat counter, I can make an entire two meals, freezer meals, casserole dishes from lean ground beef versus buying some of the other products that you need to be vegan and and vegetarian. And a lot of our families also prefer to just eat less processed food, and beef is less processed than a lot of the other things that other diets use to get there. Does
0: that make sense? Like yeah, yeah, I, mean, I know. I mean, I'd rather
3: tested, just beef.
0: <laughs> Yeah, we've we've tested um these foam meats, you know, uh-huh. and uh, I mean actually some of them taste better than natural meat except then you oh. read the ingredients and there's all kinds of stuff in them, you know.
3: <laughs> exactly. So I just you know, no no not just anybody else or anybody's food choices, but I choose to eat beef. I, I eat a ton of fruits and vegetables. My family eats a lot of other types of food because, you know, everything's a balance. But mm-hmm. beef is still a really good choice for a whole single ingredient protein.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the uh, the thing that really is- now, I was really trying to ask you what kinds of, of, of reactions you're getting to the subject from people you've been doing a beef a, a book tour and they have people well, with all the interviews been ma- mentioning this
3: so you guys are one of my first actually I think you're only my third um the the book doesn't come out for another 2 weeks so it really ramps up okay. next week but so far, it's been mixed reactions, and it's something I'm anticipating. And it's okay. I'm sure We're you all did. Yeah. To... yeah, I mean, everybody's allowed to have their own opinion, and if you don't want to eat beef, then you know you don't want to eat beef, and that's fine. I respect everybody's food choices as long as they can respect mine. So it, it's curiosity, I think, too, as to what my position is and why now, but. There is an educated reason behind it, and it's the fact that people are still eating beef, even though there are a lot of fat di- diets, but lifestyle choices and some fat diets out there that that are saying no, no red meat. The studies show people are still eating beef. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, well, I'm, I think so. I mean, I think that that's probably true. I'm really rather amazed at how many people are vegan. i mean, <laughs> that astounds me, actually. Yeah. But, yeah, it's hard. Um, yeah, it's hard to be vegan. It is. I mean, I had to cook a Thanksgiving dinner for my family one year, and um, my cousin's daughter was vegan. <laughs> it was like a, I, I never had read so many labels in my whole entire life.
3: It's hard. <laughs> and it's become hard. very
0: astounded by what was in half the stuff we were eating, you know. Who knew about Jello? <laughs>
3: Yeah, gelatin and marshmallows seem to be the biggest ones um, that people don't anticipate. But again, it goes back to the fact that beef is one single ingredient, right? And for me, it's more clean eating than it is anything else.
0: Well, you know, I mean, of course, Peter um, is English, and um, they like their beef, too. Mm -hmm. But um, what he was amazed at when he first came to the United States was the quantity that you got in in restaurants, for example. Mm
2: -hmm. The portion
0: portion size somehow seemed a little out of control.
3: uh, (laughs) For beef and everything else.
0: Everything. I I mean, I saw a comparison on TV between the size of a, uh, a, a bagel in America, and the size of a bagel in France, <laughs> it was like bizarre.
3: Two, two. I mean, and
0: we're talking about Italy.
3: The pasta sizes. You know, you go out and you get two oh, pounds yeah, that's of pasta true. in a bowl, and um, you know, you go to Italy
0: and it's it's your your first dish, and it's a normal sized portion of food. Oh yeah. You know, no, I mean, I I see people digging into these um, huge bowls of pasta. I mean, you know, it would be unheard of in mm-hmm. Italy. It's just sort of mm-hmm. one course. Yeah. So Anyhow, you hit on some um, information here that I think is in short supply. I think people really do not know what kind of beef they should buy and what the standards are. They I mean, don't, this, do they?
3: I think... I would buy this book just for the first chapter. I That's had what I'm so thinking. Much, yeah. I had so much fun writing it, and I actually had so much more I wanted to put into it, but it was just too much. I think I got too excited talking about beef. Um, but there is an entire <laughs> section on, on demystifying cuts of beef, and it is priceless. It breaks down all the cuts of beef, the different names that they have, because depending on what grocery store you're at, depending on what butcher you go to, depending on where you live, these cuts have different names. And I find that the average consumer picks a cut of beef based on the size that they're looking for or the shape. And they might, (laughs) if they can't find the cut that they're looking for, then they find something that's similarly shaped, and that might not be the best way to cut it.
0: You don't know this, but you're opening up to one of Peter's favorite stories. (laughs) Oh, really? I'm about the roast beef. Do you want to tell that one, Rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> You'll like this. It's really funny, this is funny. It's, Oh, I can't wait. This, this is a,
2: this is a f- semi-fictitious person. No one on this phone call is involved in, in this of story.
3: <laughs> of course, of course. But, but uh, the
2: the the young lady who was involved in the story was... T- take, taken over, took over, cooking Sunday lunch time for her mother, because mother wasn't getting around so well anymore, mm-hmm. and uh, there was this strange thing that she had a respect that there was a particular pan that was always used to roast the roast roast. And she couldn't mm-hmm. understand what the young lady couldn't couldn't understand what this was about. But she let him ride for a little while, and then she finally couldn't couldn't stand it anymore. And she had to ask her mother, "Why do we cook the Sunday roast beef in this particular pan?" And mother said, "Well, it's the only one <laughs> in which it will fit." <laughs>
3: But that is well, actually, part
0: the that. other part of the story was the the cooking instructions said: first off, you you cut a, a section of the roast off. <laughs> the oh, of so it'll and fit. Before, Got it. Yes.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, <laughs> goodness. Well, well, well and of course, there is you know, the Yorkshire pudding
3: terrible.
2: thing. Incidentally, my mother used to use the same pan to cook the sunday roast for 50 years but i never thought to ask why
0: (laughs) well you know the other thing i think is really um you're doing everyone a favor by um, going through this you have it laid out here with you have your primal cut the subprimal cuts description notes optimal cooking methods and uh, common uses and, and I think that's an eye opener for a lot of people. It really
3: is. Beef isn't like chicken, where you know you have thighs and breasts and legs, and they're all very similarly cooked into the same temperature. And in many cases, all three of those can be swapped with minor adjustments. Whereas beef's a little bit trickier. But having these kinds, this useful information at your fingertips makes it a little bit easier and a little bit less intimidating to purchase beef. Um, and I also want to say that if anybody pre-orders the book, it if you we have a pre-sale giveaway campaign for Certified Angus Beef ribeyes, but you uh, if you enter it, you automatically get that chart that you're referring to in a PDF form, so that you can print it out and put it on the inside of one of your cabinets or in
0: the pantry or in your junk drawer, so you can easily access it. Uh-huh. Hmm. The the other thing that I think is is useful is storage and handling. You know, one well shopping guidelines certainly, but that's part of the, the overall picture. But people aren't. In fact, I just had a recent episode where I just stocked my upright freezer, um, which lives in the basement or lived in the basement, with probably. Well, there was $500 right off the bat, plus what was in there when I was stocked, it was that. And the next morning, it was dead. The freezer was dead. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And so I had all this meat freshly <laughs> frozen in my refrigerator. Oh. And and I had to check on my knowledge of what I could do. And the, the first thing I realized was that the, the, the stuff was... Completely thawed. I mean, it wasn't just partially thawed. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, we have this great food shortage and all this food insecurity, so I'll call like 412 Food Rescue or, you know, some of these other pantry houses, you know, places. Mm-hmm. Nobody will take it if it's a private person. Did you know that?
3: Uh, you know what? It doesn't. I did not, but it doesn't surprise me.
0: Right, insurance, right, liability.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's just so many things out there now, and they don't know how it was previously handled if it wasn't a commercial kitchen.
0: Right. So, yeah. I mean, I ended up calling um, my hairdresser. <laughs> who who called? I was say, Everybody you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because I I couldn't bring myself to just throw this stuff in the. You know, I had prime strip steaks, and I had uh, oh. duck breasts, and I had. Uh, some goo that I didn't really want, but my butcher supplies uh-huh. it, and, and it was it was traumatic,
3: really traumatic. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. All of that good, good meat.
2: Now, now you you remember mad cow disease?
3: I do. Yeah.
2: I, we we worried about about my mother and what she would consume. She lives in England. And she said, I, I, I know exactly where this cow came from, so I trust the person who raised it, and I'm not even worried, not the slightest bit worried about mad cow disease, so there.
3: <laughs> and it's true, it's it's trust. I mean, and that's part of the reason why, I, you know, I talk so much about Certified Angus Beef brands, but part of the reason that I always look for their label on beef is because they have certain standards and quality standards that I know every piece of, of meat has been inspected and certified and lives up to. So it's kind of like that feeling of knowing exactly who raised it. You see the family faces on their website and on their packaging, and you get yeah. that same feeling, the connection.
0: Yeah. You know, something else that, that you – would have to do with this cookbook, and did do, I must say, is um, in the modern era. You have to consider all these different kinds of cooking methods that people are involved with. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you, so you have to delve into um, air fryers and um, slow cookers and you know that kind of thing, pressure cooking. You didn't mm-hmm. get into sous vide. I mean, I have one pot that somebody sent me that does all of that plus sous vide, and I've never even taken it out of the box because it's so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
3: I tried sous ving. I have a sous vide machine. Um, it came out amazing. I loved it. But quite frankly, I just I, like I said, I have two little kids. I don't. I don't have the foresight or the time. And mm-hmm. to to get into that and part of that was I wanted this book to be accessible to my main audience and my main audience are people like me they're busy people that aren't always thinking ahead about what's for dinner they might be going to the grocery store on the way home from work and they don't want something that takes eight hours no matter how delicious it is so and not everybody has a grill and I think that that's one of the highlights the, and, and when you're asking about what feedback I've gotten that people are surprised about, there's not one grilling recipe in this entire book. It's It'll aimed for somebody with just a basic home kitchen, a stove and an oven. And there are some notes in there for how to prepare some of these meals in a pressure cooker or a slow cooker. But really it's going back to just the basics that most people have easily accessible in their kitchens. And that doesn't always include a grill. You know, I lived in the city for many, many years, and I didn't have access to that type of a thing, or all of these small appliances, because I just, quite frankly, didn't have the storage space. Yeah, well, people keep sending me all these
0: small appliances. No, no. <laughs> I've never used my sous vide, and no, I've no. never used my air fryer. I've never. I used actually my really enjoy food.
3: my air fryer. I'm going to say yeah, you I do really like my air fryer. I, I, I do like my air fryer a lot. Um, people <laughs> rave about there.
0: And this one woman, um, actually, my dental hygienist told me it changed her life, which I I, thought, on one hand, was a little sad.
3: (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm not gonna go with life painting, but it's super easy, and it. it, My favorite use for it is actually reheating pizza. It gets the crust nice (laughs) and crispy again. Instead of, like, getting out the pizza stone and heating up the oven in three minutes, I can have a (laughs) piece of pizza that tastes fresh. Um, French fries, tater tots, again, I have little kids. They eat a lot of food, but, you know, we still every once in a while have French fries and stuff like that come along. But um, chicken wings, stuff like that, it's actually a really useful tool. But it is big. It is bulky.
0: Well, mine's a dash, but I haven't actually lifted it out of the bag or the box yet.
2: Now you had a you had a steak that you loved, oh, oh yeah, tell us about your steak Lowy. and and it and it uses cast iron skillets to cook steaks, which i which I do incidentally all the time on un, unbidden by the fact that you wrote this wonderful book and said you you have to cook your steak that way but tell our tell our listeners a, a story of this magnificent beast that you've cooked
3: well. <laughs> I am a big fan of pan-fried steak, and I know at first glance most people kind of cringe a little bit because they think of steak on the grill, but quite frankly, you're going to these high-end steakhouses, the chef isn't out back on his Weber making your steak on charcoal. He's in the kitchen most likely either pan-frying it or using like a salamander or a broiler to make it, and it's Mm -hmm. just a magnificent thing. You get this searing hot pan that's hopefully well-seasoned, adding even more seasoning into it to get this nice crust, this nice bark on your steak, and then finishing it off with a compound butter. It's so simple. It's so easy, and that is my favorite way to enjoy beef. And to build on that, we also have another um, ribeye that has like a porcini crust, dried mushrooms, oh, yeah, that mushroom, hydrated mushroom with a balsamic glaze and it uses the same technique of pan searing but with this excellent crust on it that is just to die for it's perfect for dinner parties or romantic evenings and it's not hard it's not hard at all it's so easy to master and i, I guarantee anybody who who tries it will agree with me that it is an excellent excellent way to to prepare a steak yeah,
2: the, the barbecue, yeah it sounds barbecue. like you agree the barbecue heroes like Steve Reichling and Meathead and a few other people who made the, made their names in how to cook steaks and things mm. on the grill. They they call this technique a reverse sear. Yes.
3: yes, yes,
2: interesting. So so so, listeners, if people say to you you should cook your steak with a reverse sear, just tell them not only that, not only do I do that, but I have the book that invented it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I invented the technique, but I'm surely trying to share the knowledge. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I love a steak on the grill. We grill a lot at our house year round, even when it's snowing. My husband will. Be yeah, we there. used Just to, but with well, the two of
0: us at home now, we don't do it as much. But uh,
3: do you cook yeah,
2: bistecca fiorentina. What was that? I'm sorry. Do you cook bistecca fiorentina?
0: Bistecca fiorentina. Uh, no. No, I do not.
2: <laughs> ah, we have to, this,
3: this, it's
2: actually a tr- traditional recipe particularly focused on the fact that there's a particular brand of cow which grazes in the river, in the river valley between Montalcino and Cortona. And uh, we, we were having lunch in Cortona one day and I can remember the name of the restaurant. It was called the Osteria del Teatro, and they brought this steak out, and and it hung on the over the edge of the plate on all four sides. And we said, "How can we possibly finish that?" And we proceeded to do exactly that.
3: It was, yeah, you know what? When we we were there, um, I guess three years ago, and and spent a couple of weeks in Tuscany. Yes. and we were we were in florence but i feel i can't remember I, f- I think they kept calling it like a byzantine steak um but it sounds very 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 similar and it was be, be, particular be like a cow native to the yeah 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 okay so yes i am um we actually have a really funny picture of my daughter who was only 7 months old at the time reaching for this giant cut of steak on a plate <laughs> at a <and just, laughs> you know an outdoor an outdoor cafe in the mm. middle of florence that that was,
2: that was that was how we we greeted our two uh, nephews when they came to the united states for the first time we cooked we cooked a 1 pound steak for each one of them and they proceeded to demolish <laughs> the steaks
3: talking about portion sizes <laughs> yes yeah.
2: steaks were almost as big as they were
3: yeah, know, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. looking
0: through your book. I wanted you to tell the story about the funny soup. Find it. Funny. Um, I don't know how you ever reconstructed it. You had it at a party.
3: Oh, the cheeseburger in a bowl?
0: Yeah, I <laughs> noticed that one.
3: <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll tell you, the first time I ever had it was actually the party my jeweler was holding. And he... Um, I've never been a fan of um, American cheese, and when I think of hamburgers, I think of or a cheeseburger, I think of American cheese. I do eat other cheeses on burgers, but anyway, American's not my favorite. So he had this this crock pot full of cheeseburger soup, and he kept telling me how wonderful it was, and it was just great, and he he everybody loved it. He'd won awards for this cheeseburger soup, and I. I'm I'm not the person to ever say no to trying anything, but I had already decided in my head it wasn't going to be for me, <laughs> and I tasted it, and I was wrong. I am one to admit when I'm wrong as well. I was so wrong, but I decided to create my own um, a little bit more carefully, I guess you could say. I wanted to make sure that all of the elements of a really good cheeseburger were in this soup, but in a way that I would really enjoy it and others would enjoy it too. So, you know, there was that whole movement recently about deconstructed food. It's basically Uh a deconstructed cheeseburger in a bowl. And we use croutons on the top for texture, but also to emulate the bun. And instead of American cheese, I use shredded cheddar cheese to get that really creamy base. And then top it with your favorite toppings, bacon, tomatoes, shredded iceberg, lettuce, things along those lines. So it's actually almost like a cream of cheddar soup but with ground beef in it for the the hamburger part of it and then topped with your favorite burger toppings. And it's just a fun, fun twist, but the kids love it. It is a very kid-friendly meal and it can also be done in a slow cooker, the base of it, and then all of the toppings served on the side. If you do want to take it for a party or a potluck, like the gentleman did that introduced me to the soup to begin with.
0: Well, listeners, this book is filled with stories like this, and and a lot of stuff that we haven't even touched on. On um, it hints at, at uh, the the pillars of a good cooking. You know, like mm-hmm. seasoning and salt and and um, swaps and. and it, it, and there are really good recipes in it, too. So um, it's called Beef It Up, and if you've been trying to revive, I, I view it as a, a cross between comfort food and contemporary taste is what I think, and also mm-hmm. accessible home cooking. But tell me, is that right, Jessica, is that a good summary?
3: Exactly how I would describe it. It's Modern Takes on Comfort Classics.
0: That's quite... Well, Jessica Formicola, um, Beef It Up is the name of the book, listeners. And I thank you, Jessica, for talking to us. We sort of went on a bit, didn't we? <laughs> and yes, still fine. Didn't it was a it was Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, much success with your book.
3: Thanks so much. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you.
4: Podcasting services for on-the-menu radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
0: Welcome back. Next up, we're going to be talking to Pierre um, Garron. from about Peter's, like, passion for this cheese, well, from Henri for Fermenterie, which is the ultimate fresh cheese. I mean, French cheese, not fresh cheese, French cheese. Um soft cheese. I mean, like, we're talking about luscious here. Uh, let, let's let him tell us about it. Pierre's gonna tell us about this cheese. Yes, we're going to be talking to Pierre Guerin, um, who is with this absolutely outstanding, um, fromagerie, a cheese producing company, French, of course, um, called Henri Houtin. And, um, it's French cheeses, and especially as, as I understand it, um, Brie, your go-to company for Brie, and other soft rind, soft and round cheeses, and Bella 12, a triple cream, which sounds fattening, but it sounds delicious. And I might point out that your company goes back to 1922, so that you're now 100 years old. uh, But you're making the same cheeses, but you have really super modern, uh, innovative equipment. Am I correct on all that?
4: you said it perfectly uh, yeah it's uh, we're celebrating our 100 years this year and uh, you know we're keeping producing the the same brie with with some modern techniques and we're we're coming up with new flavors new shapes but we are really a, a big specialist of brie
2: now what, what is the difference between brie and camembert
4: oh my god you when want to start the world they're,
2: they're, they're both soft about
4: french Uh, yeah Yeah. Yeah, we if you want to start a war in france uh, you 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 shouldn't (laughs) ask that question Uh, the you Uh, know i'm i may not be an expert in camembert but the reality is this is this is a similar product coming from two different regions um the brie was created a long time ago uh, some people say it was created in the 7th century and Ooh, well, one good. of the, yeah it was one of the favorite of charlemagne uh, the the king um but this was created in the east part of uh paris uh about 35 miles in a region called brie uh which to nowadays is is really the Suburb—it's not a good word—but actually, really not too far from Paris, and it has extended to the east of Paris. The Camembert, that really the region of origin is Normandy, uh, which is totally west. So they're actually two uh, completely opposite of Paris, uh, east and (laughs) west. Uh, Now, in terms of of what I know. Uh, I know a l- lot more about brie, but my understanding: first camembert is a is a set wedge item uh, by nature. Uh, brie is 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 an item that you cut uh, to the size to the wedge you need. Uh-huh. Uh, the the camembert, I believe, as part of his DOP, um, has, has to have a certain size and weight. Um, and don't quote me, but probably I think 250 grams or something like that. I may be wrong on mm-hmm. that. But the the reality is that uh, it's uh, usually camembert has a lower fat content uh, uh, because brie brie is between 60 and and 70 73. I think the top one. Uh, so so it's a different recipe. Uh, camembert tend to be um, you know, and, and there's always the debate of pasteurized versus raw milk. Obviously, okay, uh, but the, the, which is the same with brie. The original brie was always made with raw milk, and the DOP brie, which is brie de Meaux or brie de marin, are raw milk, which, as you know, cannot be exported to the US.
0: Uh, right. For, you
4: know, for, uh, uh, crazy,
0: crazy ruling, but yeah, <laughs> okay.
4: yeah, so.
2: So, the department of agriculture is so stupid they stop yeah us, well, stop I
4: think, you us, know stop us from having the really good stuff yeah to, to 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 be fair there's been a lot of progress done in the u.s uh with certain organization that is trying to promote raw milk and there are there are domestic raw milk uh cheese produced in the u.s but but they're still they're still very rigid on what you can import and what type of cheese can be uh, done with raw milk. But but the classic brie, as as same for the classic camembert, uh, was always and is still always made with raw milk. Uh, but everything you'll find in the U.S., even you know so-called brie de which cannot be called brie de Meaux, will be will be with
0: pasteurized milk. Hmm. Interesting. Well now, um, how, what do you attribute it's your longevity, the company's longevity to? I mean, it's pretty astounding that you, you've just sort of cannonballed along for a hundred years. The, the um, I
4: think I think it's in the DNA of the company. Uh, if you follow the story of the young Henri hutin. We pretty much took over the family farm, the family creamery. Oh yeah, he was a 19- son, a
0: farmer. Yeah,
4: yeah he t- took over in 1922, and uh, he was he was really decided to to continue making more and more cheese, and he expanded his distribution in the east uh, toward Mez and North which are in the Lorraine region and his factory burned um you know between between 1922 and, and the uh, the world war ii and he rebuilt the factory and then during world war ii especially the east of france being pretty uh destroyed around that time uh the the factory was destroyed again so he really kept going so there's a lot of perseverance um which i think is in the dna of the company uh, mm-hmm. Quality, quality is clearly, uh, and and one thing the company has done after, um, especially in the 60s, they started exported the cheese. To give you an example, Belle Etoile, who is really um, a, a very strong brand in the U.S., has been the first triple cream brie exported to the U.S. in 1950. Right. The double cream couran or Brie Quran, which is also uh, a product you can find uh, a lot in a lot of places, a lot of supermarkets in the U.S., was also exported very early. And we have another brand, Tour de Paris, uh, which is also a product you can you can find. So, so Henri Hutin until the, the the moment he retired in 1975. Uh, Basically, when he was 75 years old, I guess he decided that was, that was a good age to stop <laughs> working, <laughs> which, we, which we know is, is probably what we all have to do now. But um, he, uh, he finally, in 1978, looked for a company that shared his values and sold to a German uh, family-owned company called Hopland, uh, who is the big cheese producer in Europe, and they, this, this, this acquisition made the uh, Hawkland able to produce more and invest more in that plant and to do more breed and help with the export. So, so we're part of this family-owned business today. And, and honestly, that's, um, you know, and I, on a side note, I can tell you, because I've heard the story from people that have been working for UTAN for many years. Uh, You can imagine when in 1978, um, the proposal to take over that factory, which was a big employer near Verdun, was a German company. Um, There was a lot of resistance, a lot of... (laughs) Uh,
0: I was going to ask you that anyhow, but go ahead. Yeah, no, it's...
4: uh, I mean, not too long ago, I was talking with uh, the lady that works uh, with me uh, from France who works in the U.S., and... uh, she was telling me uh, it was uh, it was a very strong political fight, and finally, the, some of the highest uh, political uh, forces in the in the region said, "You know, you've got to choose: either the company die, or we, we work with those guys." And uh-huh. you won't find anybody nowadays that will complain about it. To the opposite, this Hogland has been a major major help for the development of this company. Mm-hmm.
0: So now, where, where do you live?
4: Oh, do you live- me, me, I'm in the U.S. I'm helping. I'm actually the business development manager. But the the people that work with the plant, uh, uh, a lot of them will live in, near or in Verdun, uh, which is really the plant is located a few miles from uh, from this uh, iconic city in France
0: right and now um, how do you how do you find that in the US so so we're we're lucky enough
4: because we have been um, working with a lot of importers and distributors that are that are important partners for us and have been for many years we are lucky to have a very wide distribution if to give you a few names and again, you know, there's a good chance your local supermarket, especially uh, some some independent stores will carry a lot of our brands, but uh, in terms of major chains for Etoile or Triple Cream, you find it in every Trader Joe's in the US. And that's that's a really uh, an important distribution channel for us. But you also find it in uh, most of the Kroger stores all over the U.S. So that, yeah, that really. are the, yeah, that are the um, you know, in the Murray's cheese shops uh, in Kroger, that's really where we are. Um, okay. In some more, some more regional, and I'm talking again, still while Iris Teeter in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, Central Market in Texas. High V Price Shopper shows in my neighborhood. Whole Foods? Yeah. They, they uh, are you in
0: Whole Foods?
4: Wal- food, no. We we're not in Whole Food. There there's a couple of them in California that carry it, uh, but we're not part of Whole Food. Whole Food is is a, a lot of time looking for, you know, very specific products, and they will carry certain triple cream, but they don't carry ours. Uh, I mean, I'd be happy if they could carry us, but they have not. Um, they used to in the past. Uh, and for Couronne, which is our double cream, you'll find them in all, in Albertson and Safeway. Um, in New York City, you'll find them in Foodtown, uh, Aristide, Central Market, same as Belle Etoile. Um, you find that in really in a lot of stores. And I'm, I'm missing quite, quite a few, but I was trying to give you the... Uh, some examples. but
0: well, you you don't do any online sales, do you? We
4: we actually we do. Thanks to one of our uh, distributor importer called Gourmet Food International, you can find us on Gourmet dash you know, it's dash yeah. uh, dot com, and we're we're on their website, and you can find you can find both Coron and Belitwa. And they offer different cuts, uh, you know, different size in terms of, uh, of uh, weight.
2: Now, we've so got some of, some of the cheese samples that you sent us, a, a couple of them are, had rather elegant labels. But there, yeah. there, were other, there were others that were just sort of oval shaped, and they yeah. had a very small writing of the name. I, I, I couldn't even tell what it said what yeah makes
4: that,
2: what makes that different
4: yeah so so we we did ship to you the étoile to so the triple cream the way it's being sold in a wedge form we saw we send you the Quran again the double cream the overall is a little uh, scoop just for you guys uh we are introducing those items and we were actually and I know you did a, already a, a podcast on the fancy food show. Uh, we were there two weeks ago, presenting those ovals under the Tour de Paris brand. So the product you got are product brand new, coming from France, that were just uh, from from R and D, and that's why you didn't have a label on them. Um, oh, but I, be- okay. I believe you must have had the, the sell sheet with some uh, some photos of it, but they will be packed under a very nice new label uh, which, which will use the brand Tour de Paris. And, uh-huh. and, th- and those, pro- those products, uh, you have three, th- uh, I, I believe, no, I think we send you two. Um, there is a tree paper, uh, which is a very unique uh, flavor, and more uniquely, the Mediterranean, which is um, mostly made with basil and tomatoes and a little, yes. little bit of garlic.
2: Oh, I'm 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 through one cheese already, Henry. <laughs> <laughs>
4: oh, I guess I have to send you some more.
0: <laughs>
4: but yeah, hey. no, they're they're very unique. Uh, we did get a lot of success with a lot of our customer testing them. A lot of uh, even you know some friends and family really enjoying those flavors. And, I, and as you know, it's it's a good, it's an interesting. I tend to have complement of the big wheels of brie because certain stores are not equipped to cut and wrap the brie uh, and any other cheese so those those are interesting for those stores
0: and yeah. um, I I think that I, I for some reason um I, we have a um a specialty store in Pittsburgh that's, um, that specializes in Italian products um, yeah. but they always have their their cheese person is always a little lady. Then <laughs> I'm always amazed to see them hoisting these great great uh, rolls of parmesan and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And cutting them up from scratch, you know. So yeah, it's you need you
4: need to be pretty strong, and you need a certain technique to cut those wheels.
0: Uh huh.
4: Definitively, uh, and, and brie is easy to cut compared to those wheel of Parmesan, which are wow, you know. All right. Uh, right. Uh, but our son,
2: mean, our son worked for a while at Whole Food Market, and he told he, he one of the departments he worked in was the cheese department. He and did they, specialty on, cheeses. On, yeah. He did. On his, on his last day of work, they they allowed him the privilege of taking a whole wheel of Parmesan and breaking it up. So wow. He was, he was very proud of himself. Uh, yeah. I'm sure.
0: Well, they, didn't, they didn't want him to leave because I mean, he grew up with specialty cheeses, specialty foods, because of am being a restaurant critic and everything. And, um, and Peter, we're both foodies. He's been around food a long time. So they were really thrilled to be able to get somebody to, with some knowledge and experience working in the cheese department. But he's trained as a, um, an IT librarian, so <laughs> he went back to his day job, you know. So they were very sad to see him go. But
2: now, <laughs> uh, Listeners, listeners we, we told the supposedly apocryphal story that General Charles de Gaulle when he when he was president of France in the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh republic. How how could you govern a country that produces fourteen different kinds of cheese? four
0: hundred.
2: I, I actually thought there were a whole lot I actually talked to a whole lot more variety than that. I think he said four hundred.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah, if four hundred did I
0: yeah. <laughs> <said> <laughs> Say yeah, just
4: different. to be honest, if it was only 14, it'd be easy. But yeah, uh, easy. For, it
0: was 400. <laughs> no, I,
4: 400. 400 is another another story. The, but you're thing, absolutely but... right with this quote, and uh, you know it's a quote that we keep using. It, especially these days in France, where there's a, a lot of elections happening and there's a, a lot of question about how the country is going to be governed. Uh, it's a good it's a good expression to use right now. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> we,
2: we were we were once in one of our tours of France, which have been several.
4: We were in a town I think it's called Milau. Uh, Millau, probably, Millau, yeah. Millau. A probably. Yeah. In Aveyron. in Aveyron.
2: But but the most amazing thing was we were we were looking for some place to have lunch just sort of down the road without stopping for very long. So we. So we stopped in front of what would be called here a truck stop. Yeah. And it passed the test we always apply to fast food in the country. It had a lot of
0: cars in the parking lot. That's our judgment of a good restaurant to stop on the road. <laughs> a lot yeah, of cars. That's,
2: that's so usually
0: a good sign.
2: So as we, drove, as, as we drove by the entrance to the Roquefort Caves we we knew we knew we were in cheese heaven <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah there's there's very little place in France when you're not in cheese heaven, so that's the beauty <laughs> of it there's, there's so many different regions, so many different cheeses and uh, you know, and yeah. it's 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 a pleasure. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to be able to taste. And and as you as we were discussing earlier, there's always a story behind each cheese. And you know, it's like uh, whether you go back to the seventh century, like brie, or you know, a more recent type of cheese. There, there's long, long history behind. Yeah,
2: for, forgive me because I I left out what, what what here we we call the punchline of the story. Ah. At, the, at the end of the meal, you can get either dessert or cheese, and the cheese display was ten different kinds of roquefort. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, how do you choose we, from we, that? We, Good luck. We, yeah, we Why?
2: we we, fig- we figured we must be a losing proposition for them.
4: yeah yeah no that's uh yeah you were in the heart of the roquefort region clearly
0: (laughs) well it's pierre it's really been great talking to you and and we're really enjoying your cheese i mean i'm as fascinated by its um its history as by anything i mean of course the, the flavors are wonderful the texture is wonderful um, and I'm, I'm, I have a preference for for soft cheeses, anyhow, and yeah. you know, brie. Um, so, and, and, and you give a, a good upfront presentation representing your company. So, again, thank you. You're
4: um, welcome. If I may say, thank Henri Utin instead of me. He <laughs> created <laughs> <laughs> all that, so yeah, no, I, I appreciate. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Pierre, and um, we'll talk to you again, maybe.
4: Okay. Okay. Well, you have you have. Let a us here. know
0: when you're doing anything new.
4: <laughs> yeah, okay, you always you are
0: do. doing something new. <laughs>
4: well, merci beaucoup, as we
0: say. <laughs> no, merci beaucoup. <laughs> merci, goodbye. <laughs> we have La
2: France sometimes,
0: right? Okay. Thanks. Au revoir. Au revoir. Bye. Stop, what you fuck? that actually does it for this week's program dear listeners baseball listeners thank you for tuning into us um that's it for today but t- next week same time same place more interesting interviews and until then, bye bye <laughs>